HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome to Dyed Green. I'm Kate McCabe. And I'm Max Sussman. And we are talking about tacos. And why are we talking about tacos on an Irish food podcast? Ireland contains multitudes. Um, but seriously, I think that a lot of people tuning in will probably not expect the first episode of our podcast to be about tacos. So maybe we should kind of give them a little background and explain a little bit about the show and our approach to Irish food and what we're thinking about. And in fact, why we are talking about tacos here. Well, I think it might be helpful to understand that Ireland is actually a multicultural country. So maybe we could start there. Let's start there. That's a good place to start with. And I think from the very beginning, the way we were thinking about this podcast was not to think about Irish food in a very stereotypical way. And in fact, to try to use stories and talk to people who are doing things to combat stereotypes about Irish food and to tell like a much more vibrant and dynamic story. Sure. Uh, But if you were talking about, you know, stereotypes of Irish food, you would basically just be talking about potatoes, which are lovely and delicious. But could you really do a podcast out of that? Yeah. I mean, I love a good challenge. So I love potatoes three ways at every meal. Maybe we should do an episode about the stereotype about of Irish food and do a deep dive to see where see where the road takes us. But that's not this episode. <laughs> <laughs> so we spoke to Lily Ramirez Foran, who is a Mexican Irish woman who owns a market and cookery school called Picado, that's in located in Dublin, and she's also a recent published cookbook author. Her new book is called Tacos, and it's out on Blasta Books. You know, I have to say that I was really excited to speak with Lily, uh, not only because her cookbook, Tacos, is gorgeous. It's beautiful. Um, The recipes are delicious, and I love the stories. But I also, you know, I was really, really interested in hearing about her experience of trying to find Mexican ingredients in Ireland. Um, 
because I've been to many grocery stores around the country and the only Mexican food that I could find at those places were El Paso taco meal kits. And so uh, I was really excited to hear about her own journey and how she was able to start importing real Mexican food yeah. into Ireland. And I think that starting off with uh, our interview with her as the first episode of a show about Irish food exactly sets the tone for what we hope to do with this podcast, which is tell stories that are a little unexpected and that feature um, people that are doing amazing work in Ireland, but that aren't necessarily what you think of when you think of Irish food uh, off the top of your head. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited about the talk. <laughs> Same here. And congratulations on your book. Thank you. I haven't stopped <laughs> smiling since like the, but two days before the publication, I, I just been wearing this big smile and I was talking to Christine earlier and I was like, oh, I think my cheeks are sore from just, you know, greening all the time. That's so great. Is the response what you had hoped for? Well, I mean, I'm going to be totally honest. I thought the book was lovely and it was, it was a labor of love. I never really expected it to do, not that I didn't expect it to do well, but I didn't expect it, the reaction it has gotten. I think that has taken me by surprise, um, hugely. Yeah, it was, it's totally unexpected. Can you tell us a little bit about what the process of actually writing the book was like, where the ideas came from, and then how did you decide to write the book about tacos and just the whole process of getting it together? Um, this is actually probably a very unusual way of getting published and writing a book because I, I've been writing for, you know, about food for a good 16, 17 years, right? And I love the creative process of writing, but I never really wrote to target anything. I was just sort of a lot of my writing is venting and processing. So I've been venting and processing for uh, a good solid 15 years, right? And I think about 10 years ago, I got into the book that maybe I should write a book because so many other bloggers were writing cookbooks. And I got approached by an agent, who very successful agent, um, and uh, I thought, this is it. So we had a long chat. I had an idea for a book that's very different to what, uh, what I have now, that to tacos. Um, it was a big book. It was very um, engaging. And it, I think it's going to turn out being my second book. Um, I think that's where it's heading. But um, very soon I realized that publishing is, is a business. And... The Irish market, it's small. You do have to kind of hope for the British market to join. Otherwise, you know, you're not really a candidate for for publishing. And I think, I don't know whether it was timing. It's also, you know, 10 years ago where that was not, um, um, it, there wasn't really, um, I suppose, a consciousness about uh, Mexican food in Ireland. Um, and when we went through the process of writing the proposal and sending it and we were getting rejected and I couldn't 
I found it very difficult to cope with that because all my writing had always been so freestyling because, look, let's face it, a blog, nobody cares. You know, you can write and write and write. And um, it, it was very organic, the growth and everything, but very few uh, publishers. They could see the potential of the book, but they couldn't see the potential of the market. So I kind of got very discouraged and stopped writing for a while. And I said, no, I, I just, this isn't, uh, it's not for me. And I'm going to concentrate on the business and, you know, work it that way. And I was sort of resigned to not uh, write anymore and, or at least not getting published. And at the beginning of the pandemic, I got a phone call from uh, Kristen Jensen, who's the She's been my friend for many years, but she's one of the uh, one of Ireland's most prolific cookbook editors, and she's a writer herself of of three cookbooks. And um, I thought she was just ringing to say hello, and you know, isn't it terrible that we're in the middle of a pandemic? And it turned out that she had had this epiphany about uh, you know cookbook publishing in general in Ireland, and. She was setting up a new publishing house and uh, was asking me if I wanted to be her first uh, author. Immediately, I said, yes, I, I want to be part of it because it's you and because, you know, I, I do want to do it. And it took us another two minutes to figure out that it's very hard to condense Mexican food because it is so vast and so regionalized. I always tell people Mexico is 47 times the size of Ireland. It is huge. And trying to kind of condense all that into, you know, a, a small 30 recipe book was just impossible. We had to kind of give it a theme. And, and it's just the, the nature of Blaster Books allows for those themes uh, really well. So we said, well, look, at what, what's best to represent Mexican food? The tacos, they're accessible, they're friendly. They're, they're family friendly. They're they're very versatile, and there is now a, a little bit of a, a more of a culture of uh, eating tacos in in Ireland that that was twenty years ago when I first moved. Within two days, I had uh, table of contents, send it to her, and I think for me uh, at the time she rang, I was going through a really difficult personal time because uh, I was stuck in Ireland, unable to travel home. My dad had been diagnosed with cancer in August of of the year before, so we knew it wasn't, you know, it we knew it was terminal and we had plans to go see him um and in February and then everything got shut down and we couldn't go. And it became incredibly difficult to deal with that from a distance because we're like a really close-knitted family. And, you know, I found it really, really difficult. So she rang me in, she rang me in January. I think it was like the first week in January. And dad passed in March of that year. So writing the book came very easily. It was very quick. And I think because I was able to compartmentalize life so the the time I dedicated to the book was um, joyful, I think. And it was a way for me to get away from everything that was going on personally. Um, and then there was the other thing that we wanted the book to be very personal and um, to read almost like a story. So that was actually 
the recipes were there. They just had to be rewritten. I just gather all of the recipes that I enjoy cooking in, in the cookery school and then wrote context for them. And I, I got six months to basically to write the manuscript. And that was, uh, for, with the exception of the one month I took off after my dad died, it was um, kind of flown quite easily. It, it just, you know, it was in me, I suppose. Uh, and, and I love to say it was very enjoyable and some parts of it were, but a lot of it was very cathartic. There's a lot of family um, love through the book. And I think it's just a reflection of what was going on in my life while I was writing it. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, first I wanted to say that we're really sorry to hear about your father's passing. I'm sure Thank that must've been, um, so hard. Um, but I also think I would imagine that your family's really proud of the work that you're doing and proud of the book. Yeah, they are. I think my mother is like, she can't believe it. You know, she's like, oh my God, my baby who couldn't cook an egg, a fried <laughs> egg when she flew the nest has now written a cookbook. Uh, she did, she forgets that a lot of it is, uh, a lot of the book is hers. You know, they're recipes that she learned from her mother and then I learned from her. So it's really lovely. And, and it is bittersweet that my dad didn't get to see it, you know, physically, but he knew about it and he was my biggest fan, so I'm sure he's celebrating somewhere um, in heaven. Absolutely. Um, I was wondering uh, if you could talk a little bit about the experience of trying to find Mexican ingredients when you first moved to Ireland. Was it 20 years ago? Oh, God, yeah. It's going to be 20, well, it's, yeah, 21 years in July this year. Um, God, yeah, it was just desperate right I came here and the first three months were amazing you know I loved everything meat and two veg and potatoes because for some reason it's really funny Irish people kind of have a separate uh, category for potatoes right so you got your meat your two veg and potatoes and I loved it every bit of it everything was new the the meat was just so different um, because it was it's all you know grass fed and it was just completely amazing and can I just say how many varieties of potatoes can one small country have it's amazing right um, <laughs> but after three months I remember very clearly so the honeymoon sort of period was over and I remember thinking oh my god I kill for a salsa. There was nothing. I would kind of go through the aisles in the supermarkets and there was just nothing. My in-laws had never had a mango in their lives uh, or an avocado. I remember the first time they found an avocado, they actually didn't know how to eat it. And I mean, this is not that long ago. You know what I mean? Like you're talking about a thousand. There was very little. Chilies were non-existent. It's amazing to see how Ireland has changed in the past 20 years from being quite insular because, you know, it's just part of the, of the history. Irish people were used to seeing people leave and not really seeing people come in. And I came right at the, you know, hype of the Celtic Tiger, where there was an, an awful lot of influx of uh, Irish people coming back to live in Ireland, but also people from other uh nationalities coming in for um to study and for economic reasons so it it's amazing to see that 
how that has shaped uh, the the pantry in Ireland. Um, people travel a lot and then experience other cuisines and then they came back and they demanded that. But before that, there was very little. Um, you know, the most exotic thing you could get was like a, a Chinese takeaway or or you could go to an Indian restaurant, which was, wow, super, you know, out there. And now you walk the streets of Dublin and there's food from everywhere in the world. But 20 years ago, there was nothing. And that was one of the reasons why I now have a food business and I have now uh, a Mexican grocer because I was frustrated that there was so little out there. The first time I found a chili in the uh, supermarket, the way back when uh, Super Queen still existed. And I remember it was about five Irish punts. There were still punts at the time. I came just before the changeover. And I remember I paid them and I kind of did a happy dance and everything <laughs> in the middle of the aisle because I was like, yay, chilies. Um, it was just that they were that rare. And then the same... Do you remember what kind they were? Even oh, they were some hybrid. There were some hybrid of a jalapeno because also I've learned that what we are used to call chilies, a lot of people here just see a pepper and they think it's a chili. <laughs> so there was it's some hybrid of a jalapeno. Uh, there's a, a very and and I used it a lot in the book because I think it's. I'm hoping that the book is an introduction to to proper Mexican food for a lot of people, right? So I didn't want to make, you know, I didn't want to go mad on the habaneros because in fairness, I don't eat that many habaneros anymore. I'm not capable. You know, they're too hot for me. But so I kind of try, uh, there's a, there's a chili that is very common here. That's, uh, it's a Kenyan chili and it's long and narrow and it's, you know, there's a, there's some heat in it, uh, but it's not going to kill anybody. So there's a lot of my, of the recipes where I suggest, well, if you can get a jalapeno, maybe get a Kenyan chili and get the experience of so start learning uh, and, and start your journey towards eating chilies um, without, you know, getting them on to habaneros from Wargo and then putting them off spicy food forever. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com.
can you tell us a little bit about how, you know, how that period in time led to um, founding Picado and how you became versed in importing and retail and education and how all that sort of started? I think the, the mother of all inventions is desperation, isn't it? Uh, I was just desperate for my food. I, I paid, my parents used to send me, uh, the first year I was here, they, they used to send me boxes, FedEx with tortillas and a few bits. And they were like so expensive, but they, they were just my link to, because I discovered that, uh, you know, we're so linked to who we are with our food. So I, I found myself, it was not the first time I live abroad, but it was the first time that I lived in a country that I couldn't get any Mexican food um, or Mexican ingredients. So they send me these boxes and like prohibitively expensive. And then sometimes I remember once one got stuck, the last box they ever sent me got stuck in customs. And by the time I got it, all the tortillas were moldy. And I remember sobbing over moldy tortillas uh, when they'd arrive. And, and I think that to me was like a, a pivoting point. Uh, I, I just knew that I had to, I had to find a way to do these. And, and then the other thing that was happening at the same time is that there were a couple of places, some of them still exist in, in Dublin, that were uh, selling Mexican food or some version of Mexican food. Something in between, you know, Calimex and Tex-Mex and something else, you know. And <clears throat> it used to annoy me a lot to see that past as Mexican food. And for a while, I went on and on and on, ranting uh, all the time about how bad it was that this wasn't Mexican food. And my other half, uh, who obviously you haven't met, but he is the most patient gentleman on the planet. I think I just one day he turned around and said, look, if you're, if you're fed up with it, do something about it. But just basically, you know, stop, stop whinging <laughs> and do something. And I remember thinking, do you know what? I'm going to do something. And uh, I started writing first and within six months, I realized my writing was so constrained because I couldn't get ingredients. So I was ordering things on, uh, online from the States. My first tortilla press was, uh, came from, um, from a supermarket in the States with a bag of masa. And I think it was like $12, but that was $150 on shipping. Yay. Wow. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> I kind of knew there was, and, and as the blog became more popular, I was getting emails from people going, oh, I'm mostly expats at the beginning, going, oh, where do you get these? And so I kind of identified there was a niche in the market. And, and I love to say it was my entrepreneurial self identifying that great gap in the market. But no, I was just honestly desperate. And I thought, okay, if I'm going to pay 150 uh dollars on um shipping uh, i might just as well pay a little bit more and bring a big box and have some to share the love and that's basically it's all been trial and error um picado's been in operation for 11 years now and it sounds crazy but it is we're on we're we're going into year 12 of uh, having the shop it started online 
And sure, I remember saying to Alan, my husband, going, sure, you know, how hard could it be to run an online shop? It's only online, you know? Oh, sweet mother of God. It took us zonkers to figure out like a website and shipping and then learning that, you know, uh, and we were both working full-time jobs. Uh, so we did that for like four years and then we thought we knew everything about running a, a shop. And I was, I, you, I worked 10 years for a non-for-profit working with uh, youth at risk. And it was a really interesting job. And it, it kind of, I, I, um, I credit them with my customer service skills. <laughs> I know how to calm an irate person uh, out of experience from that job. But um, I, was, I was on my lunch break and I was walking through uh, Portobello, which is a, a lovely kind of, in Dublin city centre, it's kind of on the edge of, of the city. And um, there was at the time a particular spot of, it was about two blocks uh, of just border of businesses. But there was a certain charm that this, this was these sort of almost abandoned little space in, in uh, Dublin city. And there was this tiny little shop that just was for rent and it just looked really cute. And I came home that night and said to Alan, hmm, how hard could it be to run a physical shop? I mean, we know everything about running a shop. <laughs> um, <laughs> so three weeks later, this was at the beginning of the summer, Alan lectures. So he gets the entire summer off, right? And my job at the time also gave me, because he'd worked with school, so also gave me the entire summer off. So we were both used to have three months off and wonderful, let's go travel. So this at the beginning of the summer, I said, sure, why don't we do these? Like we've wanted to take these up a notch. Uh, and I was convinced that as an online web, as an online shop, you're always preaching to the converted because if they find you, that's because they're looking for you. Um, I wanted to kind of have a more educational end of, of things. And I thought, let's open a shop and we'll put a kitchen at the back where people can come in and ask you questions and watch you cook and learn. Um, so one, the shop will fit the school and the school will feed the shop and it'll be perfect business model. And so in the middle of uh, the biggest recession, uh, we have ever experienced uh, in Ireland. We got keys for these uh, plays in a quite rundown area of town. And within a year, the entire area exploded. It became really trendy, very popular. And we just had this little slice of heaven. So this is kind of related to the your cookery school that you have. And um, one of the things I really liked in the cookbook was the part where you talk about how a recipe is nothing without its context. Um, and so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how, you know, for people that haven't seen the cookbook yet or people that haven't taken a class with you, how you incorporate the stories of the food origins into, into your work. I think what what makes a recipe special and memorable, uh, whether it's in a book or 
on the internet is the story behind it. I have never been passionate about selling beans. I send them because it's a means to an end. But I do want us to educate people uh, with those beans, if, if that makes sense. So for me to give a recipe to someone and for that someone to go home and go, oh my God, I do really want to cook these. There has to be context, right? There has to be context on the ingredient. You have to know the history, the, the reason for that dish, right? So I always give this, this uh, um, example of the mole, right? Because mole is just uh, iconic to Mexican, to Mexican cuisine, right? It's a very complicated dish, but, you know, some, in some instances you're talking about 60 different ingredients, uh, prohibitively expensive to make them from scratch in this side of the world because everything is, uh, you know, everything is imported. But, and the other thing I found out is that 50% of the people who had the mole in the classes love it and 50% hated it, right? It's a very acquired taste and, you know, there's thousands and thousands of recipes. But what never failed was the fact that people actually left the class appreciating what a mole was. They appreciated the fact that it, it has a, a millennial history. It's a pre-colonial dish, but the way we cook it now has a lot of colonial elements to it. People learned about Sor Juan Inés de la Cruz, the convent kitchens in Mexico. Some of them end up going, oh my God, instead of going to Cancun, I'm going to go to Puebla because I want to see these convents. They're amazing. And so there's all these kind of stories and history behind each recipe. And we, when I choose, when I designed a cookery course, I choose the recipes based on the stories we can tell people and engage them that way. So we have in a class of uh, our space is very intimate. So we hold classes for 12 people max, right? So you have out of those 12 people, people tend to come in pairs as well. So out of those 12 people, six definitely, definitely want to be there because one of those couples booked the course. The other person, whether it's a friend or a family member or a partner, is there to support the person who likes cooking. And straight away, half of your of your audience is just couldn't care less. They're there for <laughs> they're there for the food afterwards, right? So you have to make uh, the entire time, because we spend four, four and a half hours together. You have to make that time entertaining for those who want to cook. They learn loads about the ingredients and the dish. But for those who couldn't care less, they actually learned about the stories. And there's not one single time that I've had a person leaving a class that was there. We call them the dragons, right? They got dragged <laughs> by the, the friend or the partner. And they all had a great time. So they go home and they might not cook the dishes, but they go home, home and they talk to all their mates and go, oh my God, this is, did you know that this is where holy mole came from? And so it is a, it is a really nice way to engage. And I think recipes and cookbooks should be that way. You know, it's, it's a door to getting more people cooking, but it's also a door to getting, um, you know, history and, and political background and social, you know, we talk with the Mollies, we talk about the political, um, the political unrest during the colonial period. We talk about, uh, uh, you know, the role of women in convents. We talk about, um, we talk about, uh, 
you know, ingredients. We talk about colonization of the of the pantry. There's so many things you can talk about when, uh, you know, women's rights. There's loads of things you can talk about when, when you talk about amole. It's just not a set of ingredients and instructions. It's, it's everything else. Do you find any um, parallels between Irish cooking and Mexican cooking? I'm thinking in particular around the experiences of colonialism and colonization. And, and do you find that your, um, your cooking style has been influenced by your time in Ireland? I think, yes. Uh, I cannot say that there's a lot of similarities, apart from the fact that, you know, we were both uh, underdeveloped countries. Uh, we both had a history of, of you know, uh, also, our, I, although Irish history of colonization is a lot longer than the Mexican ever had, I think peasant food and inventiveness of ingredients, uh, it's quite shared across the board. Um, people have, when we talk about the history of a dish, Irish people tend to have a lot, a lot in common, and they identified a lot with uh, the struggles from from that period, uh, but I think for me particularly, I think before coming to Ireland, I had I came from a family of of tortilla bakers by trade, three generations before me. So I I kind of I I knew the the importance of you know sourcing the right ingredients, and but I I don't think I had ever experienced a place where I could say I know exactly where every bit of this menu came from and that I knew the producers and that I could get on the car and drive an hour and get, you know, what I wanted from the horse's mouth, you know. And I think that's what makes Irish food in general, not just the food I cook, I think Irish food in general, because we have access to incredible ingredients, um, and the last twenty years have seen uh, have seen an an amazing growth when it comes to uh, food in Ireland. I think there's much more a much a bigger appreciation of how delicious the native ingredients are, and you have like you know, I always say this: we don't have cotija cheese in in Ireland, and we don't have queso fresco either. And people come on and go, oh, my God, why could you not get cotija? And I go, we have the most incredible dairy in Ireland. Why would you want to bring? Yes, I do miss the dry cotija cheese every now and then. But, but there's so many other options. And I've been always very conscious that my business is importing food. So I work 200% extra promoting the ingredients that we use that are Irish because you're supporting a local family and you're supporting the local economy. And in reality, it's like the pork, beef, lamb here is the dairy. It's just incredible. So I, that's one thing I don't miss from Mexico uh, because I grew up in a, in a large city. So, you know, this lark of getting onto your car and 20 minutes and you're in your friend's farm and you're picking strawberries or potatoes or whatever it is that you're buying of them was never a concept in my life until I moved to Ireland. So I think that's dictated a lot of the choices I do on menus now. 
Your bio says that you're on a mission to showcase Mexican food beyond its cliches and misconceptions, which I think is also one of our main goals on Dyed Green, but with Irish food. Mm. So I was wondering if you could talk about some of the experiences that you've had in Ireland, which stand out to you in terms of how um, Irish people see Mexican food. There's a there's a little rant uh, on the book. Uh, Christine keeps telling me, call them essays, Lily. But it is a little <laughs> bit of a rant um, about uh, taco shells. And they have been the bane of my existence. They've been under my bonnet for a long, long time. Because <clears throat> until very recently, if you, and, and even now I'd say, uh, I, I work every day towards that, but... You'd find people uh, in Europe in general going, uh, a taco is this crispy shell that you buy in a supermarket, that you have to bake, that you have to put in, fill in with mints and a truckload of plasticky looking cheese and, you know, lettuce. And it's just, oh, oh. so for me, that was, you know, one, uh, one big thing. I wanted to change the idea that you know, this is a taco because it isn't a taco. It's it's not even remotely close to what a taco is. But, uh, you know, burritos are the same thing. Burritos are not very prominent in Mexican cuisine. They're very much uh, associated with Calimex food. The burritos that you'd get in Mexico, they're from Sonora and, and uh, uh, Chihuahua. And they would be very different to the burritos that they're eaten here. Even like I have friends from Texas that live here and they go, oh, my God, these burritos have nothing to do with, you know, the real burritos. So we're all kind of, uh, we're all looking for that uh, little bit of authenticity. And I think burritos are a big thing for me. Uh, you'll never find them in my cooking repertoire because A, I'm not from, you know, that part of Mexico, but also because I think they're, they misrepresent here uh, what Mexican food is, you know. 70, 80% of Mexicans have never, ever had a burrito in their lives. Uh, so why is this associated as, as you know, uh, mainstream Mexican food? Thank you so much for talking to us today. This is really great. And um, I just wanted to say that I, I think that the book is really wonderful and we'll share uh, the link to it in the show notes, but it's very approachable and um, something about the size and the illustrations make you really want to cook from it. So mm. congratulations and um, thank you again. Oh, thank you guys. That's really Thank sweet. you very much. Thank you. And best of luck with the new podcast. Thank you so much. Take care. We'll see you soon. Have a great day. Thank Bye. you. Bye. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Lily Ramirez Foran. You'll find information about some of the things we discussed in today's show in our show notes. Diet Green is a production of Bog and Thunder. We run eco-culinary food tours to Ireland. You can find out more about us at www.bogandthunder.com. You can also find out more about our guest today, Lily Ramirez Foran, at amexicancook.ie. And we'll put more info about her book and everything in the show notes for you to check out. Thanks again for listening. Slon!